And let us see how our God, the Ancient of Days, is at work through His Word. Uh, Genesis uh, chapter 26. As we read this entire text again. I'm just kidding. (laughs) We will read the text throughout the message. But it is a rather long passage. It's a very involved story. And I think you'll see that all the verses that we read are indeed the story. Some people typically only focus on chapter 27. Uh, But it begins a couple of verses before chapter 27. It will end a few verses after 27. And you'll see why that matters in a few moments. I don't know what your high school yearbook team did, but many will often do this little section for the seniors in particular. And it's normally a most likely to then fill in the blank. So there's the most likely to succeed, the most likely to be the president, uh, the most likely to make a million dollars, whatever. Now, those things are nice and kind. I mean, if you think about it, it's going to be in a high school yearbook. So your kids one day are going to look back. I mean, you would hope that whatever is in there is like really positive and encouraging as opposed to like most likely to screw up, you know, like You want it to be something that's kind and affirming. And in fact, it's even kind of a fun game to play uh, in a new setting. You know, you've got some friends and say, all right, let's do some most likely questions and then let's just talk about it. But, you know, you could make the game really discouraging as well. I mean, imagine if the yearbook entry said the least likely to. And then that was printed for all of time in memory. So the least likely to be president the least likely to succeed, uh, the least likely to make a million dollars. It certainly would be a rather discouraging game. What's interesting about those games, about that exercise, is that we all think that in some way, shape, or form, that there's some intangibles, uh, some characteristics that we can observe in our own life or in the lives of other people that will somehow predict their future and outcome. I mean, the fact that we can play the game requires that there's some type of consistency, some type of trajectory to people's life that you would just say, oh yeah, I know where that guy's going to end up in a few years, or oh, I know how her life is going to turn out. But the amazing thing about living life under a sovereign God is that we so often get that game wrong. The people that we thought were going to turn out so great do not. And the more encouraging is when those people who seem the least likely to succeed somehow, in God's grace, turn out okay. That screw-up in class actually becomes the successful businessman. The, The ugly duckling blossoms into the beautiful swan. The irresponsible kid finds himself managing multiple companies. And we love stories like that because they give us hope. Especially for those of us who are acutely aware of our own failures. I mean, if we play the game with ourselves, we're just not all that satisfied with the trajectory. I mean, I know few people, I do know a few, but I know very few people who actually think, I'm going places. My life is headed exactly where I want it to be. Most of us are like, I have no idea where it's headed, and I don't really like the direction. 
You know, we ask ourselves the question, so uh, what's, your, what's your business plan? What's your family plan? Where do you see yourself five years from now? And most of us, it's either a big question mark or we're not all that happy about the current trajectory. If you're in the latter group, if you're in that group of people that sometimes has the question mark in the end, if you see some of those intangibles within your own self that calls you to question the trajectory of your life at present, I think you're going to find great encouragement from this text. Because if this family, this cast of characters in this particular story were in a yearbook entry, for the least likely to, it would be the least likely to receive blessing. You're going to notice as we read throughout this story that every single character involved in this text is the class clown, the screw-up, the least likely to succeed. And yet, the ancient Jew would read this passage about their own history, and they would actually find great encouragement. And do you know why? Because they would see in this text how their sovereign God worked to bless them, not because of their ancestry, but despite it. And that's good news for us who often struggle with our own accomplishments, our own inherent weaknesses, uh, with an acute awareness of our own failures. We need to be reminded that our sovereign God is at work to bless in us and through us, not because of us, that would be disheartening, (laughs) but despite us. There are several scenes in this act Eight to be exact, and I want to move through them quickly. I'll give them a little title at each one to help you take some notes, but mainly focus on the story and try to get a picture of every character involved. See if you can find a human explanation as to why God would continue His blessing through this family. You're going to have to search hard, though, I warn you. The first scene I would call Esau's Disrespect. It comes in chapter 26, verses 34 and 35. Uh, Notice, this is where the story starts. Now, this is really confusing for most of you because like, you're so used to looking at your chapter divisions in the Bible and thinking like, oh, I know exactly, oh yes, this is where it starts and this is where it ends. Um, But you know that the chapter divisions weren't really invented until the 14th century. Uh, they're, They're of human invention. So if you didn't know that, you should know that. And It's extremely important for you, Uh, because if you take that human grid of chapter divisions and start trying to interpret your Bible that way, you may occasionally miss the point. So in this particular case, what's going to happen is, if you start this thing at 27 and end it at 27, you're going to miss Esau's involvement. And here's how you're going to interpret the story. You're going to think, man, Jacob is such a jerk. Why didn't Esau get this blessing? Esau's such a good guy. And then you forget totally about what Esau had done in the very beginning to like show that he didn't care about God's blessing at all. So let's pick the story up with where it actually begins. There's a new cast of characters. The, the focus on Isaac is over in verse 33. And now it's talking about Esau. And you'll see the same story about his marriage come up a couple more times throughout the story. Verse 34, when Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basimoth, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. 
Now, do you notice our introduction to Esau in this story? He's not coming across as some guy who's worthy to be patted on the back. In fact, he's coming across as someone who has shown blatant disregard for what his family has already valued. Maybe you remember the story of how Abraham made sure that he secured a godly wife for his son, Isaac. And he said to his servant, Eliezer, make sure that this, the woman, the wife, does not come from the land of Canaan. In fact, God had told Abraham earlier that his seed would conquer over the Canaanites and implying that they would be different than them, that they would need to be separate from the pagan peoples of the land. These are inherent family values. And Esau shows blatant disregard for what his family had valued, for what his father had done in his own marriage. And what does he do? He does the exact opposite. He shows that he absolutely disrespects his family and what they want for him. And he doesn't just marry one Hittite. He marries two. And as much as people like to say, oh, well, the Old Testament is filled with polygamy. Uh, It's actually very rare in the book of Genesis. It isn't until the people of God actually move into the promised land that they begin to pick up on some of this paganism of their neighbors. But the way God originally intended it stands. And right now, the only other picture that we had of polygamy is in Genesis chapter 4, and it was cast in a very negative light. And so here we have an introduction to Esau. Don't think that he is coming in sparkly clean. He is actually being introduced to us to us as someone who shows blatant disregard for his or disrespect for his family's values. But it, it moves to another character. Verses one through four of chapter twenty seven, we see Isaac's disregard. We move from Esau's disrespect to Isaac's disregard. Now, you look at verse 1. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau his older son and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. Now, if you pause at verse 1, you're thinking like, Oh, poor old Esau. He's an old man. He can't see. He's at the end of life. And and you would kind of feel sorry for him. Until you continue to read... And you see that he is also going to show some disregard for what God has already revealed to him. Look at verse 2. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. It's getting close. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me. And prepare for me delicious food such as I love and bring it to me so that I may eat that my soul may bless you before I die. Now your natural thought is, hey, what's wrong with an older man asking for like one final meal from his son's hand? I mean, he he liked the taste of wild game. There's nothing wrong with this, right? But there is something wrong with this. There's something uh, heavily wrong with this because we know That he knows that God already said when his sons were born that the younger, or excuse me, the older would serve the younger. That has already been clearly prophesied by a divine oracle from God. Isaac knows this to be true. But you know what? He just says, you know, I still like my older son. He's not valuing anything that God said. And you know what's so interesting about it? He doesn't value his older son for the sake of honor. Like, hey, this is custom. This is the way we always do things. Why does the text say he does it? 
because of the pleasure of his palate. To tantalize his taste buds. He is willing to disregard God's oracle regarding the older serving the younger. Regarding the younger being superior to the older. Simply because he likes the taste of meat. You know what his relationship was with his son? It was one of pure personal gratification. They just clicked on some superficial things that didn't really matter in the end, and he is willing to honor that above what God himself wants. In fact, the text previews this for us all the way back in chapter 25 when we were first introduced to the boys. Do you remember this kind of obscure thing that it says in chapter 25, verse 28? Isaac loved Esau. Why? Because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Uh, This is a pretty dysfunctional family. Here's a dad who simply loves this one little piece of his son. They've got a connection, and he's willing to totally, blatantly disregard what God wants and bless Esau privately. And by the way, blessing, this little ceremony that normally takes place in the Old Testament, typically takes place with all the children present. But do you notice in this text that he only calls Esau... He tells him to privately go out, get this meal, and come back. He knows what he's doing is not honoring to Almighty God. So we don't have any heroes yet, but we can keep looking. We've got Esau's disrespect. We've got Isaac's disregard. But now I want you to see something that is often overlooked in the text. That is Rebecca's determination. Rebecca's determination, her role, main role in this story, goes all the way from verse 5 to verse 17. Uh, Friends, if the page of your Bible was a geographical map, she covers a lot of real estate. She gets a ton of treatment in this text. And I want you to see her involvement in the story. Because typically we focus on Jacob's involvement in the story. But it may surprise you that Rebecca will receive more attention in this text than even Jacob. Notice how she's involved. Now, Rebecca was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebecca said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau, bring me game and prepare me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two young goats so that I may prepare for them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. And Jacob actually objects at first. He says, but Jacob said to his Rebekah, his mother, behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. And his mother said to him, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go and bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother. And his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his necks. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. 
Do you see the matronly manipulation of this particular situation? This isn't Jacob's idea. In fact, Jacob gets put into a catch-22. She not only is active in this whole thing, but she plays the honor your mother card. Like, I am your mother. In fact, the text will say either nine to, nine, eight or nine different times. His mother, her son. His mother, her son. We already know that that's his mother and that's her son. And yet the narrator will keep bringing it to mind over and over again that she is leveraging all of her authority to make sure that her precious little boy gets the blessing that she thinks and knows that he deserves. Rebecca is not innocent in this thing by any means. Now you say, well, Justin, how else was she supposed to do this? Well, I think probably the way anybody would do it, to say to Isaac, hey, God said this, we should do that. But instead, she tries to help God out by means of deceit and manipulation. And she is heavily involved in this. In fact, this whole thing is cooked up by her. One more interesting little fact for those of you who like to geek out on grammar stuff. The particular verb, commanded her son, is only used of men throughout the entire Old Testament, except for this one passage. She plays the mother card, and she plays it hard. And in ancient Near Eastern culture, it stood in contrast to most other pagan cultures of that day. God said, honor your father and your mother. She knew that she could play this authority. Whereas in normal cultures, it was just the dad that had the authority Here they shared that parental authority together, and this woman is on a mission. So Rebecca is determined, but Jacob's not innocent in this. Notice his objection. He doesn't say, Mom, we can't do this. This is wrong. He says, what if I get caught? You know, he he likes the idea of getting the blessing. I'm not saying that Jacob's innocent. What I am saying, though, is that Rebecca is the instigator. She is primarily involved. And so we move from Rebecca's determination to Jacob's deception. Jacob's deception. And we see his role begin to pick up in verse 18. Now, the, this, the way I imagine this scenario, I, I don't think it's too far off. Jacob now has to prepare for the role of a lifetime. If you've ever been in a school play, you know the pressure. Like I could see Jacob in this particular instance, like backstage, I mean literally behind the curtain, He's about to step into his father's tent. He's in his costume. He's got his props. And he is going to have to put on the performance of a lifetime. And so here he is. He's working himself up because he knows that one of two things is going to happen in this scenario. He's either going to get this blessing or he is going to get a cursing. And he gets one shot to get it right. And the passage is tense. So he pushes through the curtain. And he opens, my father, and he said, here I am, who are you, my son? Remember, he's so old, it's hard for him to tell who's who. Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn, I have done as you have told me, now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. I want you to keep count of these, deception number one. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you found it so quickly, my son? He's at danger of getting caught here. He answered, and notice how he brings God into it. 
Because the Lord, your God, had granted me success. Deception number two. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near me that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. He's still doubting. And so Jacob went to his father who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother's hands. So he blessed him. Deception number three. I can only imagine, you know, uh, Jacob in this particular moment, like seeing his blind father, like reaching out for him, and he's making sure that he gets to feel the peace with the goat hair. I mean, it is deception at its finest, this time not in word, but in action. And the ruse continues. It, it shows at this point that Esau is satisfied. He's about to initiate the blessing. It says, so he blessed him. And then verse 24 He said, are you really my son Esau? It's almost as if he backs up a little bit before he initiates his blessing. He says, and then he he just answers, I am. Notice the first time he says, I am my father, and he says a lot. Now he's like, "Uh uh-oh, I better shut up. The less I talk, the better off I'll be. He only gives the simple two-word response, I am. And so then it seems like Isaac buys into this thing, hook, line, and sinker. Bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. And so he brought it near to him, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank, and it's like game, set, match. Trap, set, trap, sprung. Here he is. All right, now the covenant meal, the ceremony is about to take place. This thing is in the bag. Jacob has pulled off the deception. I mean, you're just thinking like, wow, he must be a fine actor. He gets the Oscar, but he not only gets that, He gets the blessing, which is what he really wanted. And I I want you to note the way this blessing unfolds. Look in verse 26. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let the people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you. Blessed be everyone who blesses you. Do you notice Isaac is trying to, in this blessing, undo everything that God said would be true of Jacob. But he can't outmatch God. He ends up pronouncing this blessing on his younger son, and it is irrevocable. Now, for years, I have to admit, I've always read this passage and wondered, like, what is the big deal? And I I finally get it now. Maybe I could help you with it, too, because when we see the word blessing, typically we think, what's the big deal? Just say, oops, sorry, I'm taking that one back, and I'll give it to somebody else. Like, we have erasers on pencils, you know? It's, It's not a problem to say to someone, Oh, oh, sorry, wrong guy. And because we use the word blessing, so, I mean, admittedly, flippantly in our culture, I'm not saying that we have the same access to blessing that they did, but you need to understand that when you hear the word blessing today versus when you would have heard it in an Old Testament patriarchal context, it is a world of difference. I mean, blessing to us is almost meaningless. No offense. We say a blessing before dinner. But nobody ever choked on a chicken leg just because they didn't say the blessing before dinner. 
But we know that like sometimes we forget and guess what? The food went down all the same. And then sometimes we talk about someone sneezing and saying, God bless you. Well, wherever that came from, we just say it. It's just a word. Just well, bless you. And like when we want to get really spiritual about, you know, like our relationship with somebody, we tell them like, oh, blessings to you. But like we have no clue like what it means or what it does. It's just kind of like a convenient little piece of artwork that you get from a Christian bookstore that you, you put on a corner somewhere, you know, so that people get a general vague idea of spirituality. It, it's practically, in our own culture, it seems meaningless. It seems meaningless. But in the time of the Old Testament patriarchs, God had entrusted to them a capacity to pass on or to work through them through blessing and cursing. This will unlock, by the way, so many passages in the Old Testament. Remember that passage with Balaam? And everybody's like, man, what's Balaam's big deal? Like, all he's going to do is say a blessing. It's going to say a blessing because, listen, blessing wasn't just an act, excuse me, wasn't just a word or a speech. It was an act. It was the means by which God would allow human beings to enter into His divine plan. He entrusted certain people the the power or the capacity to speak the future into existence. Like in a similar way that prophets and apostles in the Old Testament, I mean in the New Testament, were endowed with biblical authority. Like when they spoke, it was the inspired Word of God as, as empowered by the Spirit. So also in the Old Testament, blessing was something by which God allowed human beings to enter into His sovereign plan and they became a chosen means or instrument by which he would work and so when Isaac speaks he is acting when he says this it is irrevocable and what does he speak into existence on behalf of this deceptive son riches may God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine the undoubtable sign of blessing in the Old Testament And then notice this one, verse 29. Let the people serve you and nations bow down to you. Now, one day this guy's seed would then be like Lord over all the nations. Interesting. And then it says, be Lord over your brothers in particular. You're going to have supremacy. May your mother's sons bow down to you. And then the the promise of Abraham himself, cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. The, the, you will now be the means of blessing for the entire world. If people want blessing, they're going to have to bless you. And if people don't want blessing, all they got to do is curse you and they will be cursed. This is powerful. What Isaac received last week on account of Abraham's obedience, he now passes on under God's supervision to this second son when he thinks it's the first son. And so Jacob here has nailed it. His deception has worked. But now I've noticed Esau's denial. We go from Jacob's deception to Esau's denial. And this, friends, in verse 30, all the way down to verse 40, is one of the most dramatic passages in all of Genesis. I'm going to read it with the same pathos that I assumed that the narrator wanted us to read it. So don't think I'm overdoing it. You're going to notice a lot of verbs of intensity and emotion. And listen for how many times Esau is denied this blessing, even though he is still determined to get it. 
Humanly speaking, even he thinks he can defy the decree of God, and we'll see how that turns out for him. Uh, Verse 30, as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of his father, he just did miss him. Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. Now he's thinking, all right, I've got the cat in the bag, things nailed, I've done, I'm like, I'm going to be able to undo the decree of God. I've captured the animal, Uh, Jacob's not around, I'm coming, I've got the game, this thing is mine. He thinks that he'll totally be able to undo the past. And then, victory is snatched from the jaws of, defeat is snatched from the jaws of victory as it says in verse 32, his father said to him, who are you? Uh, That's not what you want to hear. He answered, I'm your son, your firstborn. Notice that he plays that card. I'm your firstborn, Esau. And then Isaac trembled very violently. I mean, have you ever been so scared, so shocked that it physically affected you? Typically, we feel this uncontrollable, like, compulsion within our own being in sorrow. I mean, if you've ever seen someone truly grieving, they can't stop shaking. Isaac is that devastated. He wanted his son to have that blessing so much, and yet he knew that he had already spoken into existence on the other. And Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. Isaac here acknowledges his defeat. He realizes that his plan to overcome God's providence has failed. He says, you know what? That one was the blessed one. As much as I wanted to bless you, Esau, I cannot bless you. God wins. And then, notice Esau. He's been denied the first time. The blessing already went to someone else. And verse 34 says, As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. I mean, we would say in English, he screamed with anger and bitterness. I mean, I very rarely hear a grown man scream. But if I do, it's typically out of anger at someone. That's exactly what's happening here. It's anger. It's frustration. I mean, you could hear it like just hundreds of yards away. And he says, bless me even also my father. Isaac, I mean, excuse me, Esau knows that he's blown it. He knows that he's ruined his life. He thought this was my chance to get everything back that I had thrown away. I thought that this would be my entry point. And yet right here, he's saying again, Lord, bless me. Bless me even also, my father. Surely you can do something. But notice denial number two. But he said, your brother came deceitfully. As a heel grabber is what it literally means. And he has taken away your blessing. Esau tries again. Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He he took away my birthright, and behold, he has now taken away my blessing. Then he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? He's still trying to get some kind of blessing. And Isaac answered and said to Esau, denial number three, behold, I have made him Lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? 
And Esau tries one more time. Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. This grown man, this hunter, this guy that we would consider to be a man's man, is crying on the ground, begging his father for anything. And it would seem at first that Isaac blesses him, but I want you to notice what comes out of his mouth. It's not a blessing, but it's what one commentator called an anti-blessing. This is going to be almost the exact opposite of what he said to Jacob. Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be. Away from the dew of heaven on high. Notice that. Instead of enjoying richness, uh, it's going to elude you. Next, by your sword you shall live. Instead of enjoying domination over all the peoples, you're constantly going to be in battle against them. And you shall serve your brother. Instead of you ruling over your brother, your brother will rule over you. Do you notice it's the exact opposite in every way except for one little line of hope that he's able to give him at the end where he says, but when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. There is a sense in which Jacob, excuse me, Esau would one day finally be able to free himself from his brother's domination and as you continue to read the Old Testament Scriptures, you'll see that in the book of 2 Kings. The nation of Edom finally breaks away from Israel and wins their freedom. 2 Kings chapter 8, verses 20 to 22. But everything, just as that came true, so did everything else. He was indeed subservient. And Esau's been denied. The whole point of this is that there is no reversing God's plan. Despite their best strategy. Team Jacob and Esau, excuse me, Team Esau and Isaac cannot prevail against what God ultimately decreed. But then Rebekah gets involved again because needless to say, Esau is not happy. Verse 41, we see Rebekah's defense all the way down to verse 46. And yes, she needed to defend her son. It says, now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with, his, with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, notice this, he said to himself, like in his own heart, the text says, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Now like he's, he's not just going to get even, he's just going to assassinate him. This is fratricide. He is planning on actually killing his brother, and he's going to do it after his dad dies. He thinks that'd be the most opportune moment. But I want you to notice how this thing, like, like a forest fire, jumps from his heart to the public world. He is so determined to do this, he can't keep it a secret. Because even though he said it in his heart, look what happens in verse 42. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. He started actually talking to other people about it. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, and now here Rebekah takes an active role again. Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now, by the way, that's, that's a... You're, that's a pretty mean dude. I mean, like, if you're comforting thoughts, like in any given moment, or how to kill someone, you're a twisted individual. I mean, it's kind of funny, but it's really, like, kind of sick. This is how he is consoling himself in light of this loss. He cooks up, dreams up, and verbalizes ways that he can kill his brother. And so his mom says, I have to make this thing happen. And notice how she's going to try to defend her son. 
But instead of going to Isaac and being honest about it, she's still going to pull off the mother manipulation card. Ladies, you do have that card. Just warning you. Verse 43. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother, in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away. Until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him, then I will send you and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? She realizes that if this thing goes through, I mean, Isaac's going to be killed. Excuse me, so many names. (laughs) Jacob is going to be killed and then Esau will be banished, if not assassinated himself. But notice how Rebecca takes care of this. She knows that Isaac loves Esau, that she loves Rebekah. Not, not a good foundation, friends, for your, your parenting strategy, just telling you. But she won't even appeal to Isaac on the basis of Jacob's good. She starts to try to cook, turn the situation for her own benefit and for his. She said to Rebekah, Rebekah said to Isaac, verse 46, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. Remember those Hittite women that we mentioned at the very beginning? You have no clue what they're about unless you read those first two verses. (laughs) Pardon my translation, but the text says that they made life bitter for them. They were a pain in the butt to them. And that's exactly what she says here. He is reminding, she is reminding her husband, you know how much of a pain they've been for us? We don't want Jacob to marry some of those same Hittite women too, right? She is figuring out a way to get him away from her brother, the brother, without Isaac thinking that he's abandoned the inheritance. And so he says, if Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? And so Rebecca comes to the defense again, not in a straightforward way, but she knew that Isaac despised these women as well. They must have been really bad daughters-in-law. And we get to Jacob's departure, which is interesting. Jacob's departure in verses 1 through 5. Now, as much as we like to view Jacob as a deceiver, and he is, I want you to notice, just from looking at your Bibles, how the narrator, how Moses, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, portrays Jacob in this. And then there'll be one final contrast to Esau. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Paran Aram, the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May He give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Notice, Isaac has totally resolved now that you know what? This is the rightful heir. And so he blesses him again with the blessing of Abraham. He says, I'm going to bless... This blessing contains land promises and lineage promises. Everything that was promised to the previous patriarchs. He's passing on to him. He doesn't know if he'll see him again. And then it says in verse 5, Thus Isaac sent Jacob away. And he went to Padan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother. Two different times it will tell us that he's going to go see Laban. Interesting little side note. I love the Old Testament for this. 
It is previewing for you a character that you'll need to know about in the future. Because Jacob's deception will eventually come back and bite him. And Laban's going to play a huge part in that. But that's in sermons to come. For now, what I want you to see is that at the end of the story, we have an Isaac who is resolved to God's sovereign decree, and he recognizes, whether Jacob was deceptive or not, that he was the one that God chose to experience the blessing, and he sends him off into the sunset, like totally ready for whatever God has for him next. Jacob is actually left in this narrative as someone who is blessed of his father. He has obtained this blessing. Even once the deception was exposed, he still gets the blessing. He still gets protection from his brother. And now notice, almost like in a little cutscene at the end of a movie, one more shot of Esau. And it's Esau's desperation in verses 6 through 9. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padan Aram. Now, Paul's here. You, you see what Jacob's noticing? I mean, excuse me, what Esau is noticing? He's thinking like, oh, maybe it's obedience that got him the blessing. Maybe there's some way in which I could still get some favor. Like, he's still desperately clawing for some kind of favor from God. He notices like, okay, uh, Jacob didn't marry these girls, and I married the wrong ones, and so... Verse 8, when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. What's he doing? He's still trying to satisfy and appease his parents in some ways. Like, all right, I know I shouldn't have married the Hittite women. So let me marry somebody from Ishmael's line. Somebody who at least descended from Abraham. Maybe they'll be pleased with me then. And we'll see through the rest of the text that this does nothing to pacify God's sovereign decree. He had already made his decision. But it is at this point that Esau finally realizes that he blew it. That he blew it. But in the end, it's not about Esau blowing it. It's not about Jacob winning. It's about the Lord decreeing it. Here we have a whole story full of disrespect and disregard, sinful determination, deception, denial, departure, desperation. There is not a human hero among the lot. And yet, just as God had said, blessing extends to the unworthy one that He has chosen. Blessing extends to the unworthy one that he has chosen. So what's the, what's the point? What's the moral of the story? It's twofold. One, the decree of God will not be denied. The decree of God will not be denied. Friends, if you're in Christ this morning, that should give you confidence. Despite the blessed the best intentions and scheming of the strongest and most cunning men and women on the planet, whether they be individuals or governments, God's decree will not be 
denied. What he says will happen, happens. Friends, this means that there should be no fear when you face opposition. We all know that there are huge impediments and obstacles to the things that God has called us to. To the lifestyle that we're trying to live for Him. There's just natural disadvantages that we're surrounded by. There, there are people who like, seem absolutely hostile, hell-bent on seeing us not succeed in the things that God wants us to do. And yet the text reminds us that whatever God decrees, happens. I, I think of Paul reminding the Philippians of this. He says that, look, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Like, whatever it is that God is, has started, He finishes, and He finishes it in you. That's what makes Romans 8, 28 and 29 so great. Talking about all things working together for good. For, for who? For those who have been called according to His purpose. And then he adds that little thing about God's predestination and foreordination. It is a great reminder that God has chosen for some of you to fully and finally represent Christ and to be fruitful and effective. And though you may feel like an absolute failure right now and that everything is working against you, God's decree will not be denied. This should encourage you. But at the same time, this should inform you. Because there will come moments in light of the opposition that we face to help out God's plan a little bit. Now all of us are to be obedient to God's plan, but sometimes you're going to find yourself in in positions or in places in which you think, oh man, I'm between a rock and a hard place. Maybe my only option is just to try to like fudge the numbers a little bit. Maybe like in this particular situation, I'm going to have to compromise just a little bit of integrity. I mean, everybody knows that we should do just, I mean, it's okay to do wrong as long as you're ultimately trying to do right. If you read this text carefully, it is not giving anyone a free pass to manipulate or to work around God's law to obtain blessing. So Justin, what makes you say that? Well, Esau will live the miserable life that was decreed for him on the run, always battling for his life. He doesn't get any long-term blessing from this thing. Uh, Isaac is ultimately uh, just going to, I mean, he is actually presented here as an absolute failure. And most people, by the way, even today, when they think of the patriarchs, they think of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, or Jacob. But everybody's like, what did Isaac do again? Like, they just know that he was like the link between the two. But Isaac is not presented as a hero, ever. His best days... His best day, excuse me, was that day that he actually allowed his father to place him on the altar. But outside of that, every other time he's mentioned, he's just seen as a failure or nobody. Oh, he did pray one time and God answered his prayer. But outside of that, not much. What about Jacob? God does indeed use Jacob and he will bless him. And we'll see in the next few weeks that God's going to change this guy's heart. But you know what? What goes around comes around. The cunning and the, manip- the manipulation that Jacob himself practiced will come back to bite him. And that is why the Laban character will become so important. Friends, God still may have his sovereign purposes for you, but that doesn't mean that you are excluded from the sinful consequences of your actions. There are still downsides to doing wrong, even if God is determined to bless. And then the last character here is Rebecca. What about her? 
Rebecca starts off on the page like this bold and beautiful woman who just trusts in the Lord. She's seen as a woman of resources. Remember when she's like at the well and she's industrious and she's willing to trust the Lord and go to a land that she doesn't know? And here are the last two scenes that we ever see of Rebecca. This is the last time she's mentioned. It's her working around the authority of her husband, manipulating her little boy, and guess what? She says to her son, hey, we're going to come back and get you, but the text never records that Jacob was ever to come back. This would be the last time that she would ever see her little boy. The decree of God will not be denied. Do not try to help him out in sinful ways. We need no modern-day Robin Hoods. You don't do wrong to do right. We honor God's way. There's a second moral or motive or point to this story. And that is that God doesn't bless because of us, but in spite of us. We end where we began. God doesn't bless because of us, but in spite of us. And this should encourage you. I had an interesting conversation this week with one of the teenagers in this camp in Argentina. Um, they, they asked me to do a workshop. Uh, in addition to the sermons, I was supposed to do a workshop on sexual purity one day and then do a question and answer session uh, based on the, the discussion on sexual purity before. And uh, so the kids had the opportunity, kids, uh, 13 to 30, so I guess since I'm 35, I consider them all to be kids, and some of you consider me to be a kid. It's okay. But they were able to write down their questions, and they were very transparent. I loved the questions. I, I couldn't get to them. There were so many. So I tried to summarize them into four. One whole category of question dealt with how to overcome the guilt of sexual sin. One of the kids even asked, I have a desire to be a pastor. I want to be in ministry. But I've committed fornication. Has that permanently excluded me from being able to be used in this way? It may not be sexual sin, but all of us know that there's just some things in our past, some things in our history that we think have automatically precluded us from experiencing the fullest blessing of God, not only in us, but through us. We just think that, all right, the people that God will really work through are the people who just got it together. And yet, that is the exact opposite of what the text teaches. I mean, let's be like, really real for a moment. Every one of you have some just nasty skeletons in your own closet, either personally or family-wise. We just don't talk about it. I thought about it even this morning. I was thinking about my own family. My family has a great name in the community that I grew up in. We were well-respected in the church. My, my granddad was like the head deacon and all this kind of... I mean, like, it was... Morally upstanding folks. I mean, like in Eastern North Carolina, like it's just two thumbs up. And you know what? I know things about my family. And they know it too. This isn't. That are horrific. I mean, just absolutely like the stuff. No one ever talks about it. But you don't talk about it. And yet I'm glad. 
that God doesn't work and bless in us and through us because of us, but in spite of us. If you are acutely aware of your own failure, if you see those tangibles in your own life that you think are pointing to some kind of a question mark or pointing towards some kind of downward trajectory, I would say that is your perspective, my friends. But what God actually says is that things are pointing up for those who are depending on Him alone for blessing. That's the whole point of this story. There isn't a human hero. You're not the human hero. God is the hero of this story. He's the one that ensures that blessing goes on to the next generation and through the next generation to others. And this should give you great confidence. Stop looking at yourself. Stop analyzing your own performance. I don't care what you've done. I don't. God does not care. You have been forgiven. If you're trusting in Christ, you are redeemed in His sight, and you are fully capable of having impact for Him. And through you to others, God will be at work. Now, some of you who are more legalistically minded are saying like, no, I don't think that's totally true. I mean, I've had lived a pretty good life. Surely the, that the person beside me who didn't live as good a life as I have, they're not going to be used as, as much, right? Like surely there's some kind of consequence or there's some kind of penalty. Look, I will admit that if you hear what I'm saying right now, that God will bless, or excuse me, that God blesses despite you. And you think, that, oh great, that means it doesn't matter how I live. I could do whatever I jolly well please. Oh, good. That means I need to sin. I get to sin, and it doesn't matter. If, if that is what you were thinking, I would encourage you just to read Romans chapter 6. I'll tell you what it'll reveal. It will reveal that God probably hasn't determined you for his blessing because you are not reoriented toward his goals, his purposes, his desires. Romans makes it crystal clear that those that God has chosen have a heart to live righteously for him. And so I say that to you today if you're thinking like, oh, well, good, this, this is a preacher who told me it doesn't matter how I live. I'm telling you, uh, how you live does not affect whether or not God will bless you, but it does reveal whether or not God has blessed you. For those who are in Christ, they are a new creation. All things are new. So I add that caveat to those of you who may be concerned. God doesn't bless because of you, but in spite of you, indeed. And for those who have truly been chosen by Him, this empowers them for good works and obedience. And for those who do not care about His blessing, about representing Him, I'm telling you as clearly as I can, you need to pray to God for mercy. You need a new heart. But that's why Jesus died. He died for sinful rebellion just like that. He rose again to give you the power to overcome this sinful tendency that you have to live for yourself and your own glory. And if you've already trusted in Him, this is good news for you today. God doesn't bless because of you, but in spite of you. Friend, you will not have victory until you are enamored more with His power than your own performance. You will not have victory until you are more enamored with His power than your own performance so let's praise him for the blessing that he's shown us even though we are the least likely
Lord, we look to Lord, your grace again. Seems like your word is always pointing us back to your grace, your power, your sovereignty. Even though the, the, the pages of, of the scriptures are filled with human beings and human activity, their foibles, their failures, their faults just constantly point us back to you. Lord, you have secured blessing for us in Christ. And, and Lord, it's not because of us, but it's in spite of us. And so we rejoice in that. Lord, give confidence today, Lord, to all, Lord, who are truly in Christ. I pray that they would be able to overcome the guilt of their past and enjoy victory in the present, not only in their own lives and enjoying personal blessing, but that they would see this or through their lives. Blessing passed on to others. Lord, invigorate within our hearts today, uh, Lord, just a, a capacity, Lord, to, to show Your grace to others. Lord, keep us from looking at our own failures, our own weaknesses. And may we rely solely upon Your strength and two great things in us. And Father, for those who do not have this heart or desire for blessing, Lord, for those who are radically committed to their own way of living, Lord, for those who just do not care, Lord, it will only be by your sovereign hand that you turn their heart. Lord, take the word and apply it to their heart. Lord, convince them of their sin. And Lord, show them Lord, the grace that can only be found in Jesus. Lord, perform that miracle even today. May some believe, may some trust in you, may some turn from their sin and be saved today. And if not today, we trust that your word will continue to do its work and that you would save them soon. But in it all, we give you the glory. We praise you for your sovereign grace. In Jesus' name, amen.